Well, good evening, friends. It's such a joy and privilege to fill the pulpit for the next couple of Sunday evenings before we take our summer break from our PM services. And we're going to take this week and next week to talk about biblical decision-making. And I will say, even taking two Sundays to address this topic is going to be more like an introduction to the issues, a general overview, because it's such a broad topic, such a practical topic. We could, we could do an entire series. We could spend an entire uh, semester going through these issues. So this is just uh, at least to get our biblical bearings uh, when it comes to decision-making in the Christian life. And the longer I'm in ministry, the more I recognize the need to teach on this topic on a regular basis. In fact, in my experience in vocational ministries, there are really two areas in which I have received the most questions, in which I have uh, been sought out to give counsel. Yeah, the first area has to do with ministering to friends, uh, family, acquaintances, coworkers that are professing believers, uh, but they either don't go to a church or they go to a very shallow ministry, and it's how to interact and minister to someone in one of those environments. And then the second area that I've received the most questions about in pastoral ministry is this. Uh, how do I make this significant decision in my life when God doesn't tell me what to do in his word? And we might even frame it up this way. How do I know God's will in a decision I have to make when he hasn't revealed to me what his will is? And just so we're thinking in the right categories, here are some of the examples of the types of questions and decisions that uh, I'm, I'm talking about. I have this job opportunity. How do I know if the Lord wants me to take that? Uh, I'm thinking about moving to another home, another city, another state. How do I think through that issue as a Christian? I'm thinking about training for ministry, seminary. How do I know if I should pursue that? What about furthering education? Should I go to college? If so, which one? I have this investment opportunity. How do I decide if I should do that? Uh, this career path interests me. How do I know if this is the one the Lord wants me to go down? This person interests me. How do I know if the Lord wants me to pursue them and marry them or wait for someone else? How do I make that decision? So th this is a particular burden I have as a pastor because it is so relevant in pastoral ministry and obviously relevant to our lives. Every day we're making decisions to varying degrees of significance. And, and the sheer amount of questions that come my way on this topic would demonstrate there's a lot of challenge when it comes to this issue and a lot of confusion when it comes to this, this topic. So that's one reason why I wanted to take a few Sunday evenings here and address this. That leads to an additional reason I have, and that is it's not only a common challenge that we face as Christians because we have an abundance of decisions that we have to make that God hasn't addressed in his word, but it's also an area in which there is such a high degree of spiritual immaturity and, and a lack of discernment. How people in evangelicalism today make these significant practical life decisions is one of the clearest evidences of the spiritual state of the church, the, the spiritual immaturity of the church at large. 
Now, you say, what do you mean? What are, what are examples of spiritual immaturity or a lack of discernment when it comes to making these practical decisions in the Christian life? Well, I'm going to list some of these out. We're not going to take time to critique them and evaluate them because I've done that somewhat recently in Grace Life a year or so ago. We walked through this in our charismatic series. I've also gone through this fairly recently with our young adults, but I wanted to at least list them out so you can understand what are the types of areas that are common or the types of methods that are common but are actually evidences of spiritual immaturity and a lack of discernment. So what is the common way that people make decisions today in the church? Well, laying out a fleece, that's one popular method. This is the practice of asking God to speak directly to you through a providential sign that you and the Lord agree upon beforehand. Interestingly, the Lord never really agrees, but we just assume he does. Uh, Pragmatism would be another common method. What, What does this mean? Well, because something worked for someone else or something worked last time I did it, Oh, that validates the method. That means I should continue to make decisions that way. So pragmatism. Casting lots would be another method. It doesn't take that form today. Today it might be uh, flipping a coin, drawing straws, but assuming the Lord is communicating his will to you through using these devices. Interpreting so-called open and closed doors. That's a very common one today in the church. Uh, This is the practice of the Lord giving you guidance and revealing His will as you rightly interpret His providence. And as you're beginning to make one of these significant decisions, if things start to get hard, if doors are closing, so to speak, that means you're moving away from God's will. But if things start to go smoothly and it gets easier and everything's lining up, well, that means you're getting close. You're moving into God's will. Others might be so bold to say that God helps me make these significant life decisions by speaking to me in dreams or just a vision. A more subtle approach is to believe that God's Spirit impresses upon me what He wants me to do in any given situation. How does He do that? Well, He gives me a strong internal impression, a holy hunch, an inner prompting. That's how he leads his people and he helps them make these practical decisions that he hasn't addressed in his word. So it is, these are just some examples, but it is astonishing to see how many of these methods are alive and well today in the church, accepted, tolerated, taught, practiced. And you say, is it really as common as you're making it sound? Well, let me ask you, many of you have been in some church context for many years now, and I want you to consider how many times have you heard a testimony of how the Lord led a person to a particular situation that sounded something like this? And I'm going to use just a hypothetical example here. Imagine a, a guest pastor coming to town, so he's got a church in a different state and he ministers there. But someone here asks him, how did you make the decision to be a pastor at that particular church in that particular state? And he he gives this type of answer, this testimony. And let's just say he's a pastor in Idaho. I, I tried to choose just the most random state possible. I'm not trying to make that apply to anything. But the pastor answers this way. Well, after I got done with seminary, I started to pray every day for the Lord to make it clear where I should be a pastor. Days went by, months went by with no answer, no clarity. 
It seemed like my prayers were just hitting the, hitting the ceiling. No activity, no answer from the Lord. But I kept praying persistently every day. I kept waiting and watching, and one day, everything changed. It started when I was driving to lunch to meet a friend, and on the way there, I saw a license plate I'd never seen before. It was from the state of Idaho. Now, I lived in Florida at the time, and it was very unusual to see that license plate in Florida. I I didn't really think anything of it, and I went to my lunch destination, a burger place, five guys, burgers and fries. I was sitting down to enjoy my burger, and I looked up at that sign they have, which tells you where the potatoes come from, uh, in which they made their French fries that day, and believe it or not, they came from Idaho. Now, again, that's not that abnormal. After all, potatoes from Idaho... But I didn't think anything of it at that time. On the way home from lunch that day is when things really started to get interesting, though. I heard my phone ring. I looked down. It was a spam caller, some type of telemarketing attempt, and it was from an area that I'd never seen show up on my phone before. You guessed it, Idaho. Well, now the Lord had my attention, and it was only a few minutes later where I got stuck in traffic on the way home and I got frustrated and I looked up only to have a different license plate staring me in the face, another one from Idaho. That's now two the same day. What is going on? I can't believe how much I've been confronted with the state of Idaho today. And I didn't realize what the Lord was doing until I got home and I checked my email. You see, I had been putting out my pastoral resume to all these pastoral search committees And when I got home that day, there was a brand new email in my inbox from a ministry from, you guessed it, Idaho. And right then and there, I knew the Lord had given me all those signs throughout the day to prepare me for that moment. And that's how he called me to the ministry. And so I would ask those of you who have been around a church context any length of time, is that kind of testimony not normal? Is that not just standard church language today? Does that kind of testimony not go unchallenged? Is it not widely accepted? In fact, wouldn't the predominant response in most environments after hearing that kind of testimony be something like this? Wow, look at how the Lord led him. Look at how the Lord put all those signs in his life that day so he would know what he was supposed to do when that email came. Look how amazing that calling the ministry was. Look how spiritually exciting and authentic it was. And we just naively jump on the bandwagon, not recognizing that a testimony like that is much more about the unbelief, the foolishness, the pride that that person had than anything else. Is this really what we're called to as Christians when it comes to making significant life decisions. Is it experiences like that that we should be expecting when we're not sure what to do, when we've gone to the Word of God, we've exhausted what it has to say on the topic, and we're not sure what to do? Is that what we should expect? Well, my goal for tonight and next week is to equip us with biblical principles so that we're not naively swept along by the foolish tide of unbiblical decision-making that is alive and well today in the church. And to do that, we're going to look at eight keys, eight keys to biblical decision-making in the Christian life. Now, again, in no way should you view these as exhaustive, but I do hope that they're going to serve as providing some critical principles for us that will not only guard us from error and the confusion that abounds today, 
but also equip us with the right foundations in place so that we can make these practical decisions in a way that's pleasing to the Lord and honoring to him. So let's begin by looking at the first key in biblical decision making. We're going to call this a preliminary clarification, a preliminary clarification. Before we make any decision, before we even approach this whole topic, we've got to clarify how these practical decisions relate to the doctrine of God's will. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, it's very common language today to say, well, I need to be in God's will when it comes to this decision. I don't want to miss God's will when it comes to this this decision. And so we've got to begin by noting that Much of the confusion and the error and all of those unbiblical practices we listed out, they're all based on an entirely flawed presupposition. And it's namely this. God's will is hidden, it's lost, and it's our job to discover it. John MacArthur writes this. Believers today act as if God had placed His will in some obscure place, sort of like a divine Easter bunny who had stashed the golden egg in some bush and all he did was sit in heaven saying, you're getting warmer or you're getting colder as we meander through the shrubbery of life trying to find the egg. Another author writes, I have met many believers who were frustrated because they were convinced that God loved them and had a wonderful plan for their lives, but for some reason he wasn't telling them what it was. He goes on to say, are are Christians like laboratory rats? consigned to explore every dead end of life while God just watches and hopes they can get out of the maze. See, we have created that problem. That's not a biblical problem. We've created that problem because we think about this issue in a way contrary to how the Scriptures reveal it. On the one hand, we know that we're called to live in God's will to know and do God's will. But on the other hand, we have this picture of God in our minds where He purposely hides it and He just gives us hints and clues and hopefully we get it right. So based on this, one crucial preliminary clarification we must understand when it comes to this issue is what do we mean and what don't we mean when we use this term will of God? The will of God. In the Scriptures, there is a distinction between two different wills of God. When we talk about God's will, which one should we be referring to? Are we talking about God's sovereign plan for the entire universe? His predetermined plan for everything that will or has happened in history? This will is really interchangeable with God's providence. Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. He does whatever He wills. Ephesians 1, 11, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. James 4, 15, You ought to say, if the Lord wills, if it is in the Lord's providence, His sovereign plan, we will live and do this or that. Is this the will that we have to know? And understand, before we make these significant decisions in life? Well, it can't be. It can't be, because God alone is the possessor of this knowledge. In fact, we can only know this will of God in one of two ways. One, we look back, and everything that's happened we know is God's sovereign will, so that's how we can know it. We look back, 
and evaluate history. Or he has revealed it via prophecy what's going to happen in the future. Like the return of Christ would be an example. That's God's sovereign will. It's going to happen. But other than that, we can't know it. We're not designed to know it. And here's the crucial point about this sovereign will. There's no point in trying to figure out if you're in or out of it because everyone's in it all the time, no matter who they are, no matter what they're doing. It's another way of saying it's impossible to be out of the sovereign will of God. Both the actions of Peter and the actions of Pilate were according to the will of God. Both the actions of John and the actions of Judas were according to the will of God. From the holiest saint to the most hardened sinner, no one is ever outside of this will of God. Other than the passages that talk about the human players in the crucifixion of Jesus, I think one of the most helpful verses when it comes to this is Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You can turn there. You probably already know it. Genesis 50:20, a great verse to illustrate illustrate this point. You probably remember the context. Joseph's brothers had acted sinfully in envy and jealousy. They had conspired to leave him for dead in the out in the desert. They changed their minds, sold him into slavery. They then lied to their father Jacob about their son Joseph's about his son Joseph's whereabouts, giving him the impression that Joseph was dead. Long story short, Joseph ends up in Egypt. As the years go by, he rises up the ranks of power until he is second to Pharaoh only. His brothers and family have come to Egypt to get food due to a famine. And this sets the stage for the reuniting of these two parties. Once the brothers recognize that this high-ranking man over Egypt is none other than Joseph, their brother, the one they betrayed years earlier, they fear for their lives And Joseph responds to them with some remarkable theology. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Now notice that. It doesn't say you meant evil, but God was able to turn it around. He was able to... Use it for good. No, you meant evil, but God, through those very same actions, meant something else. He meant good. The point is, no matter who you are, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you believe, you're in the sovereign will of God. Another passage that's helpful for us to look at here, Deuteronomy 29. 29. Deuteronomy 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. What are the secret things? He hasn't revealed them to us. His sovereign plan, that which we don't know the details of. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. So it is not accurate to say that the will of God is lost as much as we, we, we can say we don't have access to it. We're not supposed to know it. God hasn't revealed it to us. We're not going to know it. But there is another will of God in Scripture. And this is called the moral will, the revealed will of God. 
This is referred to as God's moral commands that are revealed in the Scriptures, teaching us what we are to believe and how we should live. This is what God desires for us, what, what pleases Him, and what He's revealed to us in His Word. In contrast to His eternal will, His sovereign will, this moral will can be fulfilled. It may be violated. It may not be fulfilled. In fact, look at the rest of Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of the law. See, He reveals so that we may observe. There's His revealed will. This is why we're never commanded in the New Testament to find God's will. The emphasis is always on knowing and doing it. The Scriptures operate under the assumption we can know it, we can obey it, and we're commanded to walk in it. Just look at a couple passages really briefly on this. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5.15. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand. Obligation. You are called to understand what the will of the Lord is. It's something that the Apostle Paul and the inspiration of the Spirit says you can understand. You're expected to understand it. Colossians 1, verse 9. Another passage that mentions the will of God. Paul writes, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Notice the qualifier that Paul places right after he mentions the will of God there. We ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And notice verse 10 again. When you're filled more and more with the knowledge of His will, that is what He's revealed in the Scriptures, you're going to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, it's expected of us to, be, to know the will of God, to be walking in it. Now, these passages are, are broader passages. Sometimes the Scriptures get specific and say, here's, here's the will of God for you. Take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Your sanctification. How do I know if I'm in the will of God? I'm striving for personal holiness. I am becoming in practice what I am positionally before the Lord, set apart, dedicated to holiness. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. How do I know if I'm in the will of God? I'm rejoicing. I'm persistently praying. I have gratitude in all circumstances. Now, 
a few minutes ago, I, I, I stated this clarification, and I just want to emphasize we cannot overstate the importance of recognizing this distinction between the sovereign will of God and the revealed will of God. Again, the majority of the error and confusion today, with all those methods we looked at, those are all designed to try to try to determine what is God's sovereign will. I want to know the future. I want God to reveal that what I'm about to do lines up with what he's planned for the future. We want confirmation that the choice we're going to make lines up with his secret, unrevealed, sovereign will. The problem is we can't know it. We're not allowed to know it. God doesn't give us access to it. So this this first key in biblical decision-making is by acknowledging this preliminary clarification. God's will is not lost. I'm not commanded to find it. I can't possibly know it ahead of time unless he's revealed it in his word. Everything he has revealed in his word, I am to believe and obey. That leads us to a second key in biblical decision-making. A realistic expectation. A realistic expectation. There are plenty of issues and decisions that are made for us by the Lord because He's directly and explicitly addressed them in His Word. We're not confused about these. These are matters of obedience, disobedience, what we we might call black and white issues. Should I be committed to a local church? Should I use my gifts to serve the church? Should I forgive others? Should I repent of sin? Should I pray? Should I be humble? Should I love others? There's no confusion about any of these. These are direct commands. They're clearly addressed in Scripture. But what about the abundance of everyday decisions we make, including the significant life decisions that we make, where the Lord hasn't told us exactly what to do? So here's the realistic expectation. Most of the Christian life is lived in that area where the Lord hasn't said, thou shall or thou shalt not. In fact, we could even think about it this way. For every direct command of the Lord in his word, there are a whole host of decisions we have to make that he hasn't addressed. Let's just take 1 Peter 4.9 as an example. You don't even have to turn there. Here's what it says. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Show hospitality to one another. There's the will of God. There's the command. How do we do that? Well, let's just assume that this command is narrowed down to having fellow believers over into your home for a meal. Let's just assume that is the application, the only application. Notice, How many practical decisions do you have to make that the Lord hasn't addressed there in 1 Peter 4, but you're making these decisions in order to apply and be obedient to 1 Peter 4, 9? Who are we going to invite over? The Lord didn't tell you that. What food are we going to have? What dessert? What time? What day? How long? What are we going to do when our guests are over? How often will we have people over? just a sample of the practical decisions that flow out of that one clear command and yet God has been completely silent on those decisions that we have to make. Now I'm going to give you an illustration of this and I'm going to have to make a few edits of it because it's too long for a sermon to quote the whole thing 
But so this is a paraphrased version of an illustration in Gary Friesen's book, Decision Making and the Will of God. And it's a fictitious account of Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. And it, uh, my own paraphrased version begins this way. Adam was hungry. He had had a long, challenging day naming animals. He was introduced to Eve that same day, and as the sun began to set on their first day, Adam discovered that he had worked up an appetite. I think we should eat, he said to Eve. Let's call the evening meal supper. As they discussed how they should proceed, they decided that Adam would gather fruit from the garden and Eve would prepare it for the meal. Adam set about his task and soon returned with a basket full of ripe fruit. He gave it to Eve and he went to relax in the soothing current of the river until supper was ready. But just a minute or so went by before he heard his wife's troubled voice. Adam, I need your help. I don't know which of these lovely fruits I should prepare for supper. I've prayed for guidance from the Lord, but I'm not sure what he wants me to do. I don't want to miss his will on my very first decision. Adam, would you go to the Lord and ask him what I should do about supper? Adam understood Eve's dilemma and he went to speak with the Lord. Shortly he returned. He appeared perplexed. He reported to Eve, the Lord really didn't answer your question. She said, what do you mean? He didn't say anything? Well, not really. He just repeated what he said earlier today during the garden tour. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. I assure you, Eve, I steered clear of that forbidden tree. But, Eve said, that doesn't solve my problem. What fruit should I prepare tonight? Adam looked at the crisp, juicy apples and said, Well, I feel a sense of peace about those. Why don't you make those? Eve agreed and told Adam she would call him when supper was ready. Adam was halfway back to the river when he heard Eve's call yet again. He jogged back to find Eve again struggling and perplexed. Adam, I can't decide how I should fix these apples. I could slice them, dice them, mash them, bake them in a pie, a cobbler, fritters, dumplings. I really want to be your helper, but I also want to be certain of the Lord's will in this decision. Would you be a deer and go one more time to the Lord with my problem? Adam reluctantly agreed to go once more to get an answer. When he returned, he said this, I got the same answer as before. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, for from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And then with light in his eye, Adam said, you know, Eve, the Lord made that statement as though it fully answered my question. I'm sure he could have told us what to eat and how to eat it, but I think he's given us freedom to make those decisions. Just like with the animals today, he told me to name the animals, but he didn't whisper the names into my ear. Eve was incredulous. Do you mean we could have any of these fruits for supper? you telling me I can't miss God's will in this decision? Well, the only way you could do that is to pick some fruit from the forbidden tree, but none of these fruits are from that tree. At that point, they moved forward in their newfound freedom and enjoyed fruit salad for supper. That's just a helpful, helpful narrative illustrating the reality that for every command, every directive from the Lord... There are a host of decisions that we are required to make that he hasn't spoken on. And this is the realistic expectation we have to have when it comes to biblical decision making. The majority of our lives are going to be lived out in these kinds of areas where we're operating more by way of principle than explicit passage. 
Now that leads us to a third key in biblical decision making, an unwavering conviction. An unwavering conviction. What is the conviction? When it comes to my decision making as a Christian, the Scriptures are sufficient. The Scriptures are sufficient. When it, with regard to revelation from the Lord, answers from the Lord, clarity from the Lord, the believer needs nothing additional to Scripture in order to live a faithful Christian life. We need nothing more from the Lord in order to make all of these practical decisions in a way that's honoring and pleasing to Him. Now, sufficiency of Scripture, as you know, does not mean that all information, all kinds of truth are contained in the Bible. It does not mean that Scripture gives us everything we need for surviving and living life in this world. Scripture doesn't teach us how to use a computer, how to drive a car, how to balance your checkbook, how electricity works, etc. So what does it mean? What, what are we talking about here with this term? Let me just give you a few definitions here of the sufficiency of Scripture. It means that all truth necessary for our salvation and our spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in Scripture. Here's another one. The quality of the Bible in which it contains all necessary revelation to know all that God has desired us to know, to do all that God has desired for us to do, and to be all that He has desired us to be. And then one last one. It's a little shorter. No further divine revelation is needed for Christians to know, serve, or be like God to the extent that it's His desire. Where do we see this in Scripture? Well, the, probably the classic passage is 2 Timothy chapter 3. So turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. And then Paul just starts listing out its profitability for teaching. So in Scripture, we have all the doctrine we need to know. The truth, which is to control our thinking and living, that's in Scripture. Next, for reproof, Scripture is sufficient to confront the areas of wrong thinking and wrong living in our lives. It will expose any errant way in us. Next, correction. So once it exposes us and shows us we're wrong, it gives us the corrective behavior, the corrective attitude to put in its place. And for training in righteousness. So, so its contents will direct us into the right path, into conformity with God's righteousness. What's the result? Verse 17. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's the idea of completely capable. Having been equipped for every good work. Fully equipped. Sufficiently equipped. It means a person of God trained in the Scriptures is sufficiently equipped to meet any scenario, any challenge, any circumstance that has to do with faith, wisdom, obedience, anything in the spiritual life. Now, that passage, even how I've explained it, is not a controversial issue. Most would agree with that in theory. But many deny it in practice. 
And we, we have to recognize that this denial of the sufficiency of Scripture in practice is far more subtle than a denial of the authority of Scripture. See, every Christian says, yes, the Bible's true. Yeah, the Bible is authoritative. That is the guide. That is the rule for the Christian life. Absolutely. The question when it comes to sufficiency is this. Is it enough? Is it enough? Sure, it's God's Word and it's authoritative as far as it goes. But the temptation is, when it comes to these practical decisions we have to make, it's just not enough. It's not enough to give me the guidance and direction I need. And so biblical decision-making must involve this unwavering conviction that the Scriptures are sufficient. To be completely settled in one's mind, a complete confidence that when it comes to decision-making in the Christian life, I don't need any other revelation from God than I have on the pages of Scripture. So we have to be convinced that God didn't have a blind spot. He didn't mess up when He inspired the canon of Scripture. He didn't fail to account for all of the challenges and the decisions that we are going to make in our day and age. He didn't have a blind spot. All those methods that I listed at the beginning tonight, those popular and common methods uh, alive and well in evangelicalism, all of them are a functional denial of the sufficiency of Scripture. When we go outside of the Word of God to hear from God, when we go outside of the Word of God to get guidance and direction from God as He speaks to us, whether it's audibly, whether it's through signs, whatever it might be, we are denying the sufficiency of Scripture. If I need God to give me internal promptings to know what He expects me to do, does that not indicate that I don't really need Scripture? That it's incomplete? Biblical decision-making is the Bible alone, not the Bible plus. We have to be convinced that God has either spoken directly or indirectly. He's revealed all that I need to make this decision. So we've seen a preliminary clarification. We've seen a realistic expectation. We just saw an unwavering conviction. And now a fourth key. This will be our last one for tonight. A fourth key in biblical decision-making a healthy suspicion. A healthy suspicion. What is this healthy suspicion? It's ourselves. Ourselves. Operating with this mindset, left to myself and my own wisdom and my own sinful heart, I am a great liability in this decision-making process. I have to operate with a healthy suspicion of my heart, resisting the tendency to place any degree of authority in myself, any weight in my feelings, my desires, as though they are communicating God's desires, God's will to me. You're familiar with Jeremiah 17, 9? The heart is more deceitful than all else. Not, not just deceitful, more deceitful than anything else you can imagine or think of, anything else in existence, the human heart, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The human heart. Diseased with sin, characterized by deceit. Ephesians 4.22 says that hasn't entirely gone away when we come to Christ. Put to death the old self which is corrupt through deceitful desires. 
Our hearts are biased in favor of lies, in favor of sin. Our hearts justify sin, excuse sin, rationalize sin. Our heart is what makes sin attractive. That is why the Proverbs have a particular term for someone who places any confidence and trust in their own heart and follows it. It's an appropriate term, fool, fool. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six: he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Now, you say, all right, so we just ignore our desires? Don't our desires and feelings mean something in this equation? Well, absolutely they do. I'm not saying that as Christians we never make decisions that we want to make, <laughs> that we desire, that we think are good ideas, that we would prefer. No, I'm rather saying our desires are never free from the possibility of idolatry. Now, obviously, there are two kinds of human desires. There are desires that are always sinful because the object of that desire is inherently evil. It's something which God says is wrong. It's sinful. We can't have it. And then there are desires that are natural or human in and of themselves, like the desire for food, friends, family, sleep, a job. But this second type of desire can become sinful desires due to their intensity, due to the degree to which they rule our hearts and shape us. And that is the reality of idolatry. When something rules our heart other than the Lord. And it's the second type of desiring that is at work in our decision making. Again, we don't have to worry about the first type because the Lord's already made that decision for us. If he says you can't have it, don't do it, don't desire it, we already have clarity on that. It would be this other one, this realm of human desires. We have to have this healthy suspicion even when it's in an area that we're biblically free to pursue. Why? Because of what's true about the human heart. Because of the possibility that our heart is set on something other than the Lord. And when that's the case, what will happen as we make decisions, as we walk through this process? We'll divinize every feeling we have. The Lord's leading me to do this. I'm feeling a strong compulsion from the Lord to do this. And we'll baptize every decision we want to make. Well, I'm going to play the lottery, but uh, you know, I'll give everything to the church if I win. We'll baptize it. We're going to be vulnerable to viewing the entire decision, the entire circumstance through the lens of what our heart is set on, through the lens of our idolatry. And that language is straight out of Ezekiel 14. Let's turn over there just in the final few minutes we have. Ezekiel 14, a great passage showing us the reality of the hermeneutic of one's own idolatry. <clears throat> See, we very well may think that we are accurately perceiving reality and ourselves. We very well may think that our desires are free from the contamination of sin, but we could at the same time be looking through the lens of our own idolatry and be blinded by it. And that's what the Lord brings out here. Pick it up in verse 1. Then some elders of Israel came to me and sat down before me. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? 
Therefore speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, Any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet. I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in matter in view of the multitude of his idols in order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through all their idols. You'll notice in that passage, it's repeated that the one who sets up idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity. And that is to communicate the idea of inescapable influence in the language of Paul Tripp. Imagine living your life with your hand permanently in front of your face like this. You can still see, but you're not seeing clearly. You're not able to see or perceive things as they really are because everything that you see is passing through what's immediately in front of your face, through the lens of your hand, so to speak. Until that hand is removed, until that idol is removed, it'll exercise inescapable influence and thereby distort and obscure our thinking and our desires in that decision-making. And the point for bringing that up here tonight is this, because of the reality of idolatry and the subjectivity of evaluating our own hearts and our own desires, even when they are for benign things, things that may be good, we should be operating with a healthy suspicion of ourselves because of these realities. It's very easy for us to desire something so much that it gets transformed into this spiritual pursuit when in fact we could just be justifying unbelief or pursuing a sinful desires. Now you say, all right, well, how do I know if I'm doing that? How do I know if I'm following my heart? How do I keep myself from being vulnerable to that in the decision-making process? Well, come back next time, and I will attempt to answer that in part two, but I'll give you a, I'll give you a hint where we're going. We're looking at eight keys to biblical decision-making in the Christian light. So tonight we've seen a preliminary clarification. We've seen a realistic expectation. We've seen an unwavering conviction. We've seen a healthy suspicion. Next time, we're going to see a godly prioritization. So that is making decisions that are flowing out of a biblical value system. A godly biblical priorities, they are to govern our decision-making. And then we're going to see a liberating obligation, a liberating obligation. We have freedom, just like the example with, with Adam and Eve. We have the freedom to make a lot of choices that in and of themselves aren't dishonoring to the Lord. So it's a liberating, it's freeing, but at the same time we have an obligation to be wise and we are responsible for our decisions. So a liberating obligation. And then we're going to look at a discerning emulation. We're going to look at examples in Scripture, primarily of the apostles who applied their own reasoning and wisdom to circumstances and said, it seemed best for us to do this. I thought it was best to send you Epaphroditus, uh, you know, just to name a few examples. So we'll look at, at a few examples in Scripture. And then lastly, we're going to look at a resolute submission. A resolute submission. What, what is that? After we have exhausted our responsibility, we've exhausted all avenues of wisdom, 
We are to move forward in faith, make the decision, and entrust ourselves ahead of time to the Lord's sovereign will, whatever would come to pass. So a resolute submission. That is where we are heading, heading next week. Well, let's pray as we close tonight. Father, may these truths serve to turn us more and more away from the world of uncertainty and our flesh and the world of subjectivity and immaturity to the world of your word where there is objectivity, there's clarity, there's sufficiency, and there is authority. You're so kind and we're so thankful that you've given us everything that we need. And therefore, we ask that you would guard us from looking elsewhere for direction. And you'd help us to cling to your testimonies, for they are our life and our good. It's in Christ's name we ask. Amen.